Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13 is where we are this morning. Lord willing, we will finish John 13 uh, this morning and then dive into John 14 next Sunday. We are in the Upper Room Discourse, five full chapters, one amazing night, one amazing conversation all taking place on Thursday of the Passion Week. We started in the beginning of chapter 13 with Jesus washing his disciples' feet, showing us humble love's example, the motivation, the blessing that comes from it. We also saw last week that, G- that Judas doesn't contradict the point of that passage. He enforces it. We saw his betrayal predicted, his uh, identification made that Jesus says, this is who's going to betray me. And then he tells Judas to leave and the, the betrayal is set in motion at that point. And here, in verses 31 through 38, with Judas gone, the tone changes. And Jesus begins to speak. And he's going to address his disciples in, in three main areas this morning. And then the rest of the time that he speaks with them, he's kind of just fleshing out those three main areas. And I just, it's such a privilege that we get to eavesdrop on this conversation. This conversation was not to us. This conversation was Jesus to his disciples. And yet we get the privilege of eavesdropping on what Jesus is saying to his disciples and ultimately what he's saying to us this morning. So let's read it together. John chapter 13, verse 31. Therefore, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You won't seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another by this All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. God, thank you for these words. I pray that as we dive into this text and as we hear Jesus communicate to his disciples, I pray that he would speak through his word to us this morning. That we'd be enraptured by his glory, that we would long to be with him, even the way that Peter wants to be with his Savior And that ultimately we would love the way that Jesus has loved us. We would love others in our church family. We would love believers with the amazing love that Jesus has given to us. And in doing so, we would show the world around us that we treasure Christ above all things. We've been changed by his love. And that by our love for one another, flowing from your love for us, Everyone would know that we are your disciples. God, teach us now, instruct us. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. We're so excited. Thank you for bringing us back together again on a Sunday morning, on the Lord's Day, 
to dive into your word. What a privilege. We want to thank you and we want to give careful attention now to your amazing holy word. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So Jesus speaks about his glory, his departure, and this new commandment. That's where he's going here. So that's just really going to be our outline this morning. Jesus is going to speak about his glorification in verses 31 and 32. Number two, he's going to speak about his departure, verse 33. And number three, he's going to speak about this new commandment, verses 34 through 35. And then we'll see Peter's response to it. We're also going to see John's response to it. So we're going to do a lot this morning from this section of Scripture. The verse starts off in verse 31 when Jesus is going to describe his glorification. It starts off with the word therefore. Therefore it looks back. For looks forward. Therefore looks back. So therefore because of what just happened, Jesus is going to speak. What just happened? Judas just left. I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation with somebody like you know that you have to have a serious heart to heart with somebody. This is going to be a, a conversation that you need to have. And, and as you start to dive into it with somebody, uh, somebody comes along and, and they're standing on the outskirts and they're kind of listening and, and you just change what you're talking about. You know, you're excited to talk with this person and then somebody comes along and you just start talking small talk. Just, you know, oh, that's oh, how cool. And you're just kind of waiting for them to leave. And then when they leave, you're like, yes, now we can get back into it. And there's, there's a difference. There's a change in the tone. There's a change in the feel. That happens to me way more often than I would like to admit. Where I'm like, wait, I just need to talk to this person. And other people come, and you're like, hi, how's it going? Um, so can I help you? What do you need? Oh, okay, cool. All right, keep going. Okay, now, um, that's what's happening here. Jesus' Jesus's tone changes because Judas has left. The new covenant community is going to be established now that Judas is gone. And so here, once Judas leaves, Jesus says, it's time. It's time for the most glorious moment in all of human history to take place. It's time. He uses the word glorify, glory, or glorified, some form of that word glory. He uses it five times in two verses. He says, when Judas had gone out, Jesus says, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. There's just a lot of glory happening. It's a lot of glory. So let's just split it up into three questions. When is Jesus going to be glorified? When he's going to be glorified now. Now is the moment. The time has finally come. He's been waiting 33 years for this moment and the cross The wrath of God being paid in full and the resurrection when God the Father validates and confirms that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient to pay for the sins of those who believe. This is the moment of the glorification of Jesus. This is it. Once Judas left, the machinery of the arrest and trial and execution have all been set in motion. And Jesus is not saying, because this is happening, there's a a hurricane ahead. And because of that, I'm going to steer the boat around. No, he's saying we're going right through. Now is the time to go right through this moment of absolute horror. And in it, I will be glorified. In it, I will be glorified. How? How is he going to be glorified? Question number two. So when it's happening right now, how is he going to be glorified? He's going to be glorified. He calls himself. Now is the son of man glorified. He calls himself son of man. 
Now, if you are equal to God, which is what son of God means, son of God means equal to everything that it means to be God. If you're the son of God, I would use that title for myself. I'm the son of God constantly. But that's not the title that Jesus most loved and most used about himself. He uses this title, son of man, equal to man. I am fully human. There's many reasons why. We've talked about a few of them over the course of our study in the Gospel of John. It goes back to Daniel. It's a messianic term. But here in this moment, what Jesus is saying is the Son of Man, fully human, is going to die. A fully human man is going to die. How is God going to die? God cannot die. And that's why Jesus has to come as God and man, 100% human, to die as a human. That's what Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15 say. Just write it down. I'll read it for you. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, since we are flesh and blood, Jesus likewise also partook of the same flesh and blood, so that through death he might render powerless him who had power of, of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying is Jesus had to partake of flesh and blood in order to be able to die. So how is he going to be glorified? He's going to be glorified by dying. Now, at this very moment, is the Son of Man. This is the hour, and I'm going to die. And in my death, I will be glorified. And in my death, not only will I be glorified, but God, the Father, will be glorified in me. Why? Because God's faithfulness, justice, holiness, love, mercy, all those things are on display at the cross. And we'll see that later as we continue in our study of the Gospel of John. Third question is why? Why is Jesus going to be glorified? So now is the moment. He's human. He's going to die. He's 100% God, 100% human at the exact same time. He's going to die. But why is that going to bring God the Father glory? And why is that going to glorify the Son? The glory that the Son will receive is because of his human obedience to the Father. This is glory that needs to be specified. Because when we think of glory, we think of Mount of Transfiguration, right? We think of pull back the veil of your humanity, shine forth your deity, and everybody's kind of blinded. We think of God and... Moses asking God, can I please see your glory? Show me your glory. And God says, well, I, I can't fully do that because if you saw all of my glory, you would die. So I'll hide you. This glorification that Jesus is speaking about has no bright lights, no shining aura. It's just simple obedience. In fact, if you were standing at the cross watching Jesus suffer and die, you would say, this is the most horrific darkest moment ever and this is just sad you wouldn't have said look at the glory on display here look at what's happening look at the the lights and in fact god the father even shuts the lights off and darkens everything so that darkness fills the whole earth this is an amazing truth for our own lives the most glorious moment of jesus's life the most glorious moment for the father and the son No one would have guessed. Nobody would have expected. Nobody would have said it was the most glorious moment. What looked awful was truly glorious because there was another dimension happening that we couldn't even see. And I would say the same for our lives as well. If you are in the moment of darkness where it looks like nothing glorious is happening, 
Jesus would say to you, in those moments, maybe the greatest glory is coming about. Maybe the greatest moment of glory is happening. Because here, in Jesus' death, he will be glorified, the Father will be glorified, and even on into eternity, we will be singing, as it says in Revelation twice, worthy is the Lamb who is slain. We are fixated on the cross. We're fixated on the death of Jesus Christ. Never has God been so glorified, never has his glory been so fully unfolded as in this moment of the self-offering of Jesus. So wherever you are in your lifetime, in these moments, whatever season you might be in, don't discredit that God might be working the most glorious thing possible in your heart and in your life just because you can't see the light, just because you're stuck in darkness. That's why we sang, when darkness veils his lovely face, we can still rest on his unchanging grace. It's going to produce something far greater than we could possibly imagine or dream. So Jesus says, I'm going to be glorified. The Father is going to be glorified. This is exactly what he prayed in John chapter 12. Father, glorify yourself in me. And the Father speaks in human history and says, yes, I both have glorified it and will glorify it. And Jesus says, now is the time. The cross is happening. I will go. I will die. I will bear the sins of the world. I will take the penalty. I will go to the grave. I will rise from the dead in newness of life and be glorified in a way that nobody would have imagined. And he says, verse 32, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Now is the moment. It's happening. There's a beautiful exchange of glory happening. So Jesus speaks and he, he begins by telling his disciples, glory's coming. Yes, a betrayer is going to betray me, but glory's happening in that. Yes, I'm going to be murdered, but glory's happening in that. Yes, you will all fall away, but glory's happening. Don't be afraid. Don't be troubled, as he's going to say in chapter 14. Glory is breaking through. Number two, he talks about his departure. Verse 33. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. This is so troubling to his disciples. Jesus says, I'm leaving and you can't come with me. It's so troubling that in chapter 14, verse 1, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. We'll get to that next week. The words that Jesus uses to comfort a troubled heart. They're beautiful words found in chapter 14. But the disciples are troubled because Jesus, their Savior, their Messiah, the one that they've been following for three and a half years, said, I'm out of here and you can't follow me. You can't follow me. He says, as I said to the Jews, now I'm saying that to you. When did he say this to the Jews? Well, there's three places in John that he said this. John chapter 7, verse 33, Jesus said, for a little while longer I'm with you, then I go to him who sent me. John chapter 8, verse 21, he said to the Jews, I go away and you will seek me and you will die in your sins for where I am going, you cannot come. And John chapter 12, verse 35, Jesus said to the Jews, for a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness won't overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. So to the Jews, he said, I'm not going to be here forever. Take advantage of this now because I'm going to be gone soon. It's been six months, though, since he said that, and now it's not months away that I'm leaving, it's hours. I'm going to be gone in hours. But there's a huge difference between the way that Jesus spoke those words to the Jews and the way that he's speaking to the disciples. To the Jews, he was saying, if you don't repent and believe and follow me now, you will never be able to follow me. 
To the disciples, he is simply saying, I'm leaving and you can't follow me, keyword, now. You'll follow me sometime, but you can't follow me now. Where I'm going, you will be with me one day, but not now. But that begs the question, why couldn't they follow Jesus? Why couldn't the disciples? They want to. Peter's going to say, I'm going to do that. I want to follow you. Why couldn't they follow Jesus? I think very simply because Jesus, before Jesus gets to heaven, ultimately he's saying, I'm going to heaven. But there's something that stands in the way between him and getting to heaven, and that's the cross. You can't follow me to the cross, through the cross. I need to go be humiliated. Humiliation always comes before glory. And I need to go be humiliated before glory can possibly come. Jesus knew you're you're all going to fall away. You, You can't follow me even in this moment. You're unable to deny yourself, take up your own cross and follow me. But the main reason why they couldn't follow Jesus is because Jesus is going to do what only he could do. He's going to go to the cross and substitute himself in place of his sinful disciples. You can't be your own substitute. And so he says, I need to leave and you can't come with me. You cannot follow me. Night is coming when no one can work. He said in John chapter 9, we must work while it's day, but now it's night. Remember John said that in verse 30, now it is night. And so Jesus is going to do what only he can do only he can work in the night you can't work in the night i can't work in the night in the spiritual darkness but jesus can and jesus does that work not in spite of the darkness that he's walking into but with the unwitting and god appointed help of the darkness the darkness is going to ultimately cause jesus to be victorious this is a beautiful statement that we've seen all the way back in Genesis, what, what Satan and Judas are meaning for evil, God is working and using it for good. Only Jesus can destroy darkness by being destroyed by darkness. Only Jesus can do that. We can't do that. And so he says, you can't follow me. Only Jesus can abolish death by being swallowed up by death, by dying. Jesus kills death by dying. It's amazing. Only Jesus can disarm Satan by allowing himself to be destroyed. I love in the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke chapter 22, verse 53. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says to the religious leaders and and the band that's come out to betray him and to take him and arrest him. Jesus says to them, this is your hour. This is the hour of the power of darkness. You get one hour, but you only have one hour. And that hour, quote unquote, that time frame ends on Sunday. Do your worst now. You get one hour. It's a God appointed hour. And then that hour's over. And you lose all power when I rise from the dead on Sunday. But to the disciples, none of this is processing in their mind. They just hear, I'm leaving and you can't follow. To the disciples, nothing could be worse than Jesus leaving them. And that's why Jesus will say, it's, it's for your benefit that I leave. We're going to study this amazing passage in a couple of weeks. It's actually good that I leave. It's for your benefit. So he tells them about his glorification. He tells them about his departure coming up. And then he says in verses 34 through 35, he speaks uh, the new commandment. This is number three. He speaks of the new commandment. 
He says in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Why does he say these words? Just think logically here. Up until this moment, what was the identifying mark of being a disciple? What did he say? Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. Leave your nets. Follow me. And what did he just tell them? Can't follow me. So the identifying mark of what it meant to be a disciple is going to have to change, right? Because you can't follow me, and that was what it was all about. If you're a disciple of Jesus, we see you with Jesus all the time. But now I'm leaving, and you can't follow me. So the evidence of your discipleship is no longer a physical accompaniment. I'm going to give you a new mark. And the new mark is love. How are people really going to know that you're a disciple? How are people really going to know? It's no longer that you're with me because I'm going to be gone. How are you going to know that you're a true disciple? How are you going to know that you're not a Judas? It's about love. And so he says, I'm going to give you a new commandment. That that word new commandment, um, Sometimes we call, we call Thursday of the past week Maundy Thursday. Maundy comes from the Latin for mandate, commandment Thursday. This is the new commandment that Jesus is giving. But what's new? Commandment that Jesus gives here, the commandment is to love each other. That was uh, even in the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 18. God said, love your neighbor as yourself. So we've already been given that command. What's new about this? Jesus, what, what's happening? Is this really new? I would say two things. The newness of the command is the object and the measure. The object and the measure. He identifies love one another. Love one another. Start doing it now. Remember, what have they been doing this whole time? Arguing about who is the greatest. And he says, guys, new commandment here. Stop doing that. Start loving now. And love each other as the family of God, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of um, where you are in your station of life. Love one another as long as you are in the family of God. Love them. That's new as far as object is concerned because in Judaistic standards back then, you just had to love fellow countrymen. You didn't have to love outsiders. And Jesus is saying, hey, if they're a believer, then you need to love them. But it's not mainly object. Object is a little bit of the newness. But it's mainly the measure. That's the newness. A new commandment, verse 34. I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. That's the newness of the new command. It's the measure. As I have loved you. Verse 1 of chapter 13. I loved you perfectly. I loved you to the end, to the uttermost. I've washed your feet and I'm going to go die for you. Never before has God stepped into the world and given himself for sinful humanity. So he says, what I'm going to do is going to give you a new measure of the way that you love one another. But is it just imitation? Is it just go love like me? Just copy what I'm doing? I don't think so. And I want to, I want to ask John to help us here. As I was studying through this passage, there were two phrases, there are two words in the Greek that just jumped out off the page at me. And John, I think can help us understand what the newness is of this new command. So the two words are, back in verse 33, little children, little children, 
And the second in verse 34 is new commandment. Now, let's, let's set the stage for where we're going to go. You have to put on emotion and flesh and feel what John's feeling. Um, remember, John just leaned back after Peter said, hey, can you find out who's the betrayer? John just leaned back and said, who's, who is it? And Jesus told him. Now, if you've been best friends with Judas and you've just found out Judas is going to betray the one that you love the most, I think emotionally you'd be in shock. How do I process this? That might be one of the reasons why John doesn't stand up and say, hey guys, Jesus just told me it's Judas, let's get him. I think that if Peter, of all people, if Peter would have known Judas was the betrayer, I think Peter would have jumped him. He wouldn't have gotten out the door. So here, I think John, in utter shock, just can't process what's happening. Wait, somebody's going to betray? Oh, it's Judas? And now, and now my Savior says he's going to leave us? I think this is such an intense moment for John that he's going to latch on to this. He remembers this moment forever. He remembers this upper room forever. And I think that we can prove that by the words that he's going to pick up on and use unlike any other gospel writer or New Testament author will use. So, these two phrases, little children. Little children only found here in the Gospels. Found nowhere else in any Gospel, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And it's found nowhere else in the entire New Testament. So this word, little children, from the Greek technon, but it's technion, it's the diminutive form of children. So little children. It's only found in John's Gospel here and then seven times in 1 John. Nowhere else in the New Testament. Children's used, technons used, but never little children. And then, new commandment in verse 34. New commandment. That phrase doesn't occur anywhere else in the New Testament except for 1 John and 2 John. I believe that 1 John is John's exposition of this moment right here. John is going to cling to Little children, that's what John calls his flock, right? Little children, little children. And he's going to tell them about the new commandment. He's going to tell them about what it is. So let's let John help us. Remember, we're we're trying to ask, what's new about the new commandment? What is this? How do we live it out? What does it look like? Turn to 1 John chapter 2. Is it merely imitation? Is it merely just love the way that I loved you? I don't think it's just that. 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. We're going to let John... Exposit this new commandment. First John chapter 2, verse 7. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you've heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So it's not a new command, but it is a new command. Why? It's not new, but it is new. How? What's, what, what's happening? I think we're already beginning to see it here in verse 8 when he says, It's new because you are in him. It's true in him. And because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. What he's saying is, because of Jesus' work on the cross, now you have the ability to live this love out like never before. 
So it's not just the example that Jesus is going to give us on the cross, like, wow, look at that love. We should love each other like that. It's not just example. It's power. It's ability. Because Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, the darkness that is in our hearts, the fleshly, sinful selfishness that's going on in our hearts, that power can be broken. And now we can live out the love that Jesus has given to us. So it's not just love each other like Jesus. It's love each other now because Jesus loved you and has given you the ability to love in a different way than you've ever loved before. And that's what John's going to say. Verse 9, the one who says he is in the light, so abiding in the light, and yet hates his brothers in the darkness. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, abides in the light. So if you love your brother, it's because you are abiding in Christ. You couldn't have done that apart from the work that Jesus did on the cross. So what's new about the new commandment is that Jesus has initiated and instituted a new covenant community and has given you the ability to be in the light now because of what he's done. God has broken into the world. He began this new community through the fellowship of his son. And if you're a part of that fellowship, then you will love with his love as you abide in him and as his love flows through you. Let's let John continue to tell us. Turn to chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Of God. If you're of God, if you abide in Christ, which is only possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus, then you will love your brother. You will love your sister. You will love your family, the family of God. But if you do not love your brother or your sister, if that's not your habit and your practice, it's clear you don't abide in Jesus. It's clear that the work that he did on the cross has not been applied in your life. Chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. So we've been raised to newness of life. We are abiding in him. We're in the vine attached to him. He who does not love abides in death. Chapter 3, verse 23. This is a crucial one. This is his commandment. This is Jesus' commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. So if I'm John, I say this is the, these are the commandments. Believe and love. But John doesn't say that. John says there's one command here. The command that Jesus gave is to love. But the way in which we love, the way that Jesus commanded us to love, is to believe in Jesus, abide in his love, and that love will flow through you. So... There's two commands here put into the singular, believe and love. If you don't do one, you're not doing the other. Um, Chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Verse 7, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So if you don't know God and you're not abiding in God, then you're not able to love others. The love that comes from Jesus by his death and resurrection is the love that will flow through if you believe in him. If you believe in him. I think John is so taken aback by this moment that it sticks in his mind. And even what Jesus is going to say in chapter 15, verse 12, that if you abide in Christ, if you abide in his love, then you're going to live out the commands that he's told you to live out. So it's not mainly copying. Don't just copy. Jesus loves, I need to love. Don't just copy. It's mainly about connecting to Jesus. 
There's a newness in this command of love, and the newness is this. Connect to my love, and you can love others the way I'm commanding you. It's not mainly imitation. It's participation. Love others the way that I'm loving you. Abide in me. Now, Jesus has given us that command, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And we have to stop there, and we have to see clearly that Jesus is calling us to love each other, to wash each other's feet, to serve each other, to lay down our lives for each other. Do you specifically make time for others in this church to serve them and to love them? Do you think about them during the day and think about, how can I love them? How can I serve them? How can I be a blessing and a benefit to them? Do you love only those that can love you back? Or do you love even the Judases and the lowliest and the outcasts? We can't atone for sin the way that Jesus did on the cross, but there is an aspect where we can even love in a similar way. We can cover sin that others do against us. We can say, forgiven, it's totally, it's fine, forgiven, removed. I think Peter's going to pick up on that in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Love covers a multitude of sins. Fervent love for one another. He uses a word that, that means to stretch a muscle as far as it can go. Stretch and bend out to others as far as it can go with all the energy that you have. Paul's going to say the exact same thing, even though he wasn't here. In Romans chapter 5, verse 5, he tells the Romans that because the love of God is shed abroad in your hearts, now you can love others. Because the love of God has been given to you, now you can do this. 1 Thessalonians 3, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. Cause you to increase. May the Lord cause you to increase. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9, as the love of the brethren, as to the love of the brethren, you don't have need for anyone to write you in that. You don't need correction. You're loving each other. You yourselves are taught by God to love one another. You're practicing it. But now we urge you, brothers, to excel still more. Keep on loving. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers as it is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you towards one another grows even greater. Oh, that we would be a church that would love one another the way that Jesus loves us. Weep with those who weep. Mourn with those who mourn. Rejoice with those who rejoice. That means you're always going to be sad and you're always going to be happy at the exact same time. If you know enough people, you're always going to be sad and you're always going to be happy. You're always going to be able to rejoice with somebody. You're always going to be mourning with somebody. But the bottom line is, it's a command that Jesus has given to us and now enables us to be able to do it by going to the cross. The newness of the command, yes, it's the object, but more so it's the measure, and it's the ability that we have now to do it. But it doesn't just end there. Verse 35, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By this, what is the identifying mark of a believer such that the world will look and say, you're a Christian? What is it? Some would say what we believe. Some would say our theology. But what we believe is ultimately supposed to guide itself into our hearts and evidence itself in love. What we believe is supposed to transform our lives so that the final test of who we are is the way that we love one another. We can be known for all those things, but if we're not known for love, then we aren't known for the ultimate 
outflowing and outpouring of what theology and belief will produce. The world is not so much convinced by our religion, our faith, our gospel, by the content that we speak. The world is convinced by the power that the gospel has in our life to change us. When somebody comes in this building and sees a bunch of people from different places in life just loving each other as if we were family, then they'll listen to what we say because they see the way that it's impacted us deep down internally. That's the kind of power, the the love that flows through us because of Jesus' love for us that belongs only to believers. So, Jesus says, salvation is proven, not provided, it's not given to you because of your love for one another, but it's proven by your love. It's proven by the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, and then everything flows out of that. It's love. So, Jesus tells them, I'm going to be glorified, I'm going to depart, and I'm going to give you a new commandment that you love each other. Serve selflessly. Love. What's Peter's response? Simon Peter said to him, Lord, verse 36, where are you going? He totally missed the new commandment. The new commandment right over him. He's still latching on to, I'm leaving you. And he says, where are you going? Now, there are multiple ways that we can read the way Peter is saying this. When I, when I think of Peter, I just think of this incredibly bulky man. He's just always sweating and he's just always putting his foot in his mouth. No matter what, what should be said, he says the exact opposite, right? I identify with that. Have you ever done that before? Where you just say, oh, I know. And sometimes even as you're thinking it, you're like, I know what I should say in this moment. And then the words come out. Those aren't the words that I should be saying. No. Peter just a constant barrage of the wrong thing. And so here he says, Lord, where are you going? I love that we get this gracious. John is gracious by giving us this. I love that we get this gracious picture into what Peter's response is. We know Peter. We we looked at Judas uh, last week. Judas is always last on the list of disciples. Peter's always first. Always first. J.C. Ryle says it best. The best of men are men at best. And Peter's going to demonstrate that. The best of men, they're just men at best. Instead of saying, okay, Jesus, how am I supposed to love my brothers correctly? He calls Jesus to give an account. Hey, where are you going? You didn't give me your itinerary. Tell me. And Jesus answers, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Hey, just wait. You'll get there later. But I kind of already said this. Where I'm going, you can't follow me now. Jesus is so kind. He stops and he walks with Peter. He works with him through this. Instead of saying, you're missing the point. Okay, I'm out of here soon, but the point is I gave you a new command. Latch on to that, why don't you? (laughs) Jesus is so kind to say, "I'll, I'll walk you through this. Where I go, you cannot follow me. You can't follow me now. That's the key word. You'll follow later. Peter says, and this is totally a a Peterism here. He says, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? Hmm? Why why don't you tell me why I can't? Because I think I can. I know I can. I'm going to follow you. Jesus 
had just answered with grace and just said, hey, Peter, you can't follow me here. Peter's answer should have been the answer that my son should always give to me, but I always have to tell him, Ethan, you should just say yes, Daddy. <laughs> just, just say yes, Daddy. You know, it's just always, hey, here's a command. Here's something. Can you do? Here's this. Why? I don't want to do that. I don't no, Just no. Your response is yes, Daddy. Peter's response should be, yes, Jesus. Okay. If I can't go there, that's okay. I can't go. But his response is, why can't I? Why can't I? He actually uses a different word. He says, right now. And and Jesus says, you can't follow me now. And Peter says, I can follow you right now. You think I can't follow you in these moments? I'll follow you in this moment immediately, right now. His total uh, impulsive confidence to say, I can do it. I can do it. By the way, let's not pick on him. Everybody's saying this. Matthew tells us all of the disciples are saying, I'm not falling away. I'm following you. Wherever you're going, I'm following Peter's just the loudest one. And so Peter says, in essence, Jesus, I'm beyond the ability to compromise. And Proverbs 16, 18 is so key. When we exalt ourselves, when we puff ourselves up in pride, it goes before what? It goes before our destruction. Pride goes before our destruction. And that's exactly what Peter is exemplifying in these moments. He had impulsive confidence. He had a shallow understanding of what it meant to follow Jesus. And he had an overestimation of his own abilities to follow. I can't follow the way that Jesus is wanting me to. And Jesus even picks up on that. Verse 38. You're not going to be able to follow me now. You can't do what I'm going to do. So you can't follow me. And he says in verse 38. Peter, will you lay down your life for me? The Greek construction of that phrase is really? Like, will you really do that? Do you really think that you're going to do that? As Peter says, I'm going to die with you. Jesus can see, as it were, Peter denying him three times. Really, Peter, you really think that you're that strong? He says, no, truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. That was actually a measurement of time. The Romans would call it. Uh, the rooster crow hour. And it was usually halfway between midnight and six. So somewhere around 3 a.m., the rooster would be crowing. And Jesus says, and before that even happens, you're going to deny me three times. It's got to be so depressing for Peter. And again, that's John's just watching. He sees Judas now is the betrayer and he's gone. Jesus is going to depart and, and leave and And he's also rebuking Peter and saying, Peter's going to deny him. What's happening? And that's why he latches on to little children. And he latches on to this new commandment, love, love. J.C. Ryle says about Peter, self-ignorance is a very dangerous reality in the life of a believer. If you overassess your spiritual maturity and your spiritual strength, you are in for a rude awakening, just like Peter had. But in the context of fickle believers, we have an amazingly faithful Savior. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. It's a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we deny him in the entirety of our lives, he will deny us. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. 
Peter's going to struggle with his faith, but Jesus never says, that's it, I'm done. You're out. And I think Peter's going to pick up on the love that Jesus has for him and the new commandment. I think he's going to get it. First Peter chapter one, verse 22. He's going to get the lesson on love as he sees the way that Jesus loves him and it enables him to be able to love others. Since you have obedience, Peter writes in first Peter chapter one, verse 22. Since you have obedience to the truth and you have purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Since you are God's and he won't let you go, love freely, fervently love one another. So Jesus says, I'm going to be glorified. I'm going to leave. And I have a command. I have a new identifying mark for you, and it's love. That's the mark. Peter's response uh, is lacking, but ours would have been as well. Let's not be hard on him. In fact, let's at least be encouraged by the fact that he is saddened that his Savior is leaving. I don't want you to leave. I want to be with you. Why can't I go with you? I would do anything to be with you. That love is the love that should permeate our hearts. How how do we tie these things all up together? What sets us apart? As we conclude, as we wrap up, what sets us apart? How do we know with assurance that our faith is genuine? Is it you wear a Christian t-shirt, you you wear a cross around your neck, you have a good bumper sticker on your car, you know, you you buy the little thing from Sports Soleil that says, I'd rather be playing golf or whatever, you just scratch it out, I'd rather be at church. You know, is that the identifier? I, I want to be known for something that's deeper than that. There are so many counterfeit believers, right? There are so many people that have false assurance. And Satan loves to provide that. Satan loves to give false assurance to people who profess faith in Jesus. It's very interesting because you look around at the world and there are not too many counterfeit Mormons. There are not too many counterfeit Jehovah's Witness. Why? Because Satan doesn't need them to be counterfeit. They're not the real deal at all anyway. They believe in something that's false. But, oh, he has to get counterfeit believers. He has to dive deep into their hearts and and give them false assurance because they're latching on to the truth of the gospel and he does not want them to be saved. There are many, many false Christians. Satan loves giving people false assurance. So, where does our assurance come? If we can go point by point, glorification, departure, and the new commandment, I think we can get our assurance. And it all goes down to love. It's exactly what we talked about with Judas last week. We don't look and and, and think, okay, he was greedy. Uh Uh-oh, I'm greedy. I'm going to be a Judas. Uh, He was selfish. Uh Uh-oh, I'm selfish. I'm going to be a Judas. We look at he did not love Jesus. Do you have a love for Jesus? Even if it's as tiny as a little mustard seed, do you have a love for Jesus? Even if it's a love that will fail from time to time, just like Peter's where he denies Christ, do you still have a love for Jesus? That's the question. So, number one, just in conclusion, do you love Jesus' glory? He loved his glory, and he wanted the Father to be glorified in him, so do you love Jesus' glory? Do you love his glory? Do you want his glory to be seen in what you do? Do you love obeying him so that others see him working through you? Number two, do you long to be with Jesus in heaven? Are you like Peter saying, why can't I go now? I want to go now. I want to be with you. Will you be committed to the glory of Jesus no matter how it affects you? 
Even if it means he leaves, just like he's going to do here in the upper room. And he says, I'm going to leave and you can't follow me. Will you still seek his glory and rejoice and long to be with him? Do you love his glory? Do you long to be with him? And finally, do you love believers? Do you love believers? This is how they will know that we are Jesus' disciples, by our love. When Christians love each other, they display Christ in ways that nothing else can. So, how are we loving others in this church? How are we going out of our way to serve, to wash feet, to die for each other? How are we doing that? Can I encourage you today at lunch, when you're hanging out with your friends, you're hanging out with your family, ask this question. How can I love others in the way that Jesus loves me? How can I love love others in this church the way that Jesus loved me? How can I practically, what are specific ways that we can reach out and love? By this, all men will know that we are disciples. How can we live, live out the new commandment? We live it out because of what Jesus purchased for us at the cross. So it all goes back to the glory that Jesus is going to show us in the cross. The glory of one who would come and die in the place of sinners who hated him. And die loving them, knowing that they were still going to hate him and still hurt him. May we glory in the cross, which is the means by which we can live out the new commandment. And may we glory in the cross, which is the greatest demonstration of God's love for us that we could possibly ever comprehend. God, thank you so much for this amazing passage in the upper room. Thank you so much for the, the beauty of the cross on display. As Jesus says, now's the time. I'm going to be glorified. It's finally here, and I'm going straight towards it. And he says, because I'm going straight toward it, I, I'm not going to be able to be with you much longer. I can't stay with you, but one day you will be with me. And God, I pray for our church, that we would so long to be with you right now that it almost troubles us, such that Jesus would have to say to us what he said to his disciples, no, no, don't let your hearts be troubled. There's going to be a day soon that you're with me. And God, I pray that we would love. God, thank you for a church that loves. I just, I I think about even pulling up into the a parking spot today, just thinking, looking at the people serving and thinking, man, my, my heart just loves them and they love one another. We have genuine love at this church. And I pray that this sermon would not be a correction or, or would be heard in a judgmental way, that it would be heard, just like Paul says to the Thessalonians, excel still more. You don't need anybody to correct you. You're doing it already. Keep doing it. Abide in Christ, and as you are abiding in him, his love will flow through you. God, may we glorify Jesus even now as we sing and as we meditate on the gospel and on the cross that purchased amazing love and demonstrated that love for us once and for all.